0: While in Chicago this summer as a family, we made sure we were. Right, it was recommended to us, but we made sure that we ate two categories of food. One was deep dish pizza, which was good, but I'm over it. Two was barbecue. You go in some parts of the U.S. They have great barbecue, and across the street from our hotel was a place called Mission Barbecue. It was so delicious. We brought a pack of sauces back so that we could enjoy it at home. And what's so interesting about that chain of barbecue restaurants is that it uh, has a servicemen and woman veteran theme to it. So Inside the, the restaurant, the walls are covered in patches, in uh, pictures, newspaper clippings, uh, uniforms, helmets, helmets from Army-Navy games, football games, you name it. It's just covered with stuff. And while I was waiting in line, I took a picture of a plaque, with words authored by General Arthur Hyman about leadership, and it reads in part, I quote, writing to fellow officers, leaders of men and women, I enjoin you to be ever alert to the pitfalls of too much authority. Beware that you do not fall into the category of the little man with a little job and a big head. In essence, be considerate. Treat your subordinates right. And they will literally die for you. It's incredible what the right kind of leadership can bring out in other people. Leadership is a gift given to God, by God, to humanity and to the church because he designs to bring about certain outcomes. But that gift is not always used for the glory of God and it's not always used for the good of others. We've all encountered bad leadership, perhaps in the home, perhaps at work, maybe on a sports team, or sadly, perhaps in the church. I hope, on the other hand, that we've all encountered good leadership in one or more of those realms as well. But even with good leadership, there will be failures because the best people are people at best. And given this dynamic, sometimes we can throw out human leadership because of the harmful experiences that we have tragically suffered and survived. And sometimes we can overvalue human leadership due to the beneficial encounters that we have had with it. A few weeks ago in this very building, just in the hall, there was a gathering of pastors, and we were listening to a panel of three seasoned pastors, and one of them said, Some people think, some pastors think, some churches think that the church rises or falls on pastoral leadership. And he says, I don't know where Jesus is in that picture. I'm so grateful he said that. I'm so grateful I heard that. I'm so grateful to be able to relay that. Because the leadership that we all need, the leadership that we're ultimately longing for, is God's leadership. And as we're going to learn from Exodus this morning, God knows how to lead us, his people, best. He's the one who's going before us. He's the one that his people must ultimately follow. God knows how to lead us best. And if we're convinced of this, we would follow him anywhere and everywhere he leads Even if that meant giving our last full measure of devotion and laying down our lives for his glory. Will you? Is that what God's leadership would bring out of us? Out of our church? Would you die for the Lord? Would you follow him into the unknown? Would you endure hardship and suffering if he led you that way to make his name famous? I'll leave those questions hanging as we open our Bibles to see four traits of God's leadership. And I hope and pray that they will convince us that God indeed knows how to lead us best, and thus we will follow him. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. It's page 55 on the blue in the blue Bibles that uh, Pastor Keith mentioned. Can I call you that, brother? <laughs> page 55. Exodus 13. Sorry, verses 17 through 22. I'm picking up at that section there. Let me pray for us before we read that text together. Page 55, Exodus 13:18 to 22. Well, let's pray first and ask for God's help as we hear his word read and as we hear his word proclaimed. Lord, would you grant us with strength by your power through your spirit in our inner beings right now so that We would know, have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of your love for us in Christ, of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Open our eyes to the beauties of what your word reveals about who you are and convince us of how it is that you lead your people so that we would see you always and that we would follow you everywhere you would call us to go. And this I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So Exodus 13, verses 17 through the end of the chapter, this is what the Holy Spirit says. When Pharaoh let the people go... God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And ye shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, and the pillar of fire by night, did not depart from before the people. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For the second time now in Exodus, we encounter God's people on the move. Back in 1237, on the heels of the 10th plague, we read that the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. Free at last. They're no longer slaves, but they're not settled in the land of promise the Lord swore to give to them yet. It's going to take the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy for them just to get to the edge of the promised land. There's a long ways to go. They were on a journey, a journey that has many similarities to what we experience today. If we're in Christ, we have been saved, but we're not yet settled in the place the Lord is preparing for us. He hasn't come to take us to be with him yet. He hasn't returned as he promised yet. The first heaven and the first earth have not passed away yet. All things have not been made new yet. We are in the in-between. We're in between resurrections, Christ's and our own. We are in the present evil age and not yet the age that is to come. And while here in this have been saved, being saved, but not yet fully saved moment, we need to know that God is leading the way. More than that, we need to know how God is leading the way, for only then will we follow wherever he does lead. Only then will we conclude that God knows how to lead us best. So look at verses 17 and 18 for the first trait of God's leadership. God leads us graciously. He leads with an awareness, an intimate awareness of our infirmities, of our weaknesses, of our frailties. He takes them into consideration. God leads us graciously. Do you see where I'm drawing that from the text? When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For, God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. The shortest way for the people of Israel to get where God would meet with them on the mountain was called the the Via Maris, the Way of the Sea. And it was a coastal highway that you could walk in about two weeks. But this was not the safest way for them to go. That way was dotted by Egyptian fortresses. Uh, That part of the world was like a militarized zone at this time and place. And so it was not the safest way for them to go, not because God couldn't have taken the Philistines, but because of how he knew the people would respond. They'd want to go back. They'd think they'd gone from the frying pan into the fire. Great, we escaped the Egyptians only to fall into the hands of the Philistines. They'd probably have their beady eyes on the land God promised to us, which was likely scenario, there's not a chance they're going to let us waltz through their territory on the way to it, and there's not a chance we can take them if they try to stop us. And at least they knew what they were in for in Egypt, so let's just go back. And if that sounds absolutely mental, (laughs) don't be so quick to judge. Because every time we choose to sin rather than trust God, or choose to sin rather than suffer, For righteousness' sake, it's just like going back to Egypt. Is God capable of fighting against the Philistines for Israel? Of course, he is. Is God's power sufficient for us against the enemies we face from here to the promised land? Of course, he is. But he knows us, and he's gracious. He knows our fears, he knows our doubts. He knows our hesitations, and he graciously condescends to spare us. As in verse 18, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. A notoriously difficult word to translate there. It could be translated in formation. Or organized. They weren't chaotic as they were going, but they were not necessarily the strong mil- militarized force that could take on the Philistines. And we'll see they really couldn't take on the Egyptians either when we get to chapter 14. And so God takes them a roundabout way. Philip Graham Reichen says it was not the most obvious way. It was not the shortest way. It was not the most direct way, but it was the best way because it was God's way. God knew what his people could handle, and he knew they needed to take the long way home. And we might be on one of those roads right now, those longer ways home, and we might be in the middle of some difficult moments in that long way road home, thinking, Lord, I wish you had taken me on the shorter path. Because at least it would have been over sooner. But we don't know what we don't know. We don't know the ways our faith may have failed on the shorter road. We don't know the sins we might have fallen into in the shorter road. We don't know the harm that might have befallen us on the shorter road, but God does. And seeing that, knowing us, he graciously leads us in the way that is best. He leads us graciously. Will you follow? Even though to your own senses it doesn't seem to be the quickest or most efficient or most reasonable. We just assume that God knows our hearts and our weaknesses and our frailties and he knows the best way to take us. Let's follow his gracious leading. As we move on in the passage, verse 19 seems to come out of nowhere with a very peculiar detail. Seems kind of off topic. It seems to interrupt the flow of the theme of God leading his people, but it actually doesn't. Look there with me. We're told Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, this is emph- emphatic, saying God will surely visit you, another emphatic statement, and you shall carry my bones with you from here. And from this we have a second trait of God's leadership. He leads us faithfully. He leads us graciously he leads us faithfully. We can be so sure of God's follow through on his promises that we can trust them even beyond the grave. Because he's faithful and he leads us that way. In the patriarch Joseph, he believed that. He experienced God lead him from the hands of his murderous brothers. He experienced God bring him out of the well and get sold into slavery. He experienced God through the injustice of a wrongful imprisonment, to be brought out of the dungeon and given the second highest office in the land of Egypt. Joseph experienced God meaning for good, what others had meant for evil. Joseph saw how God had used him to spare Judah and the rest of his brothers, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He would have heard stories of Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 and Genesis 22 from his grandparents and from his parents. And he believed that God would remain true to the covenant promises he had made because in Genesis 15, God swore by himself. He believed God would be faithful even if he never lived to see the promises. He believed God's promises were for more than just his own life. Because God is faithful. And so before he died, recounting Genesis fifty twenty-five, Joseph made absolutely certain that the people of Israel understood his last will and testament. You shall carry my bones from here. He wanted his embalmed body buried in the land of promise with his ancestors who had been gathered to their fathers. And in Joshua 24, 32, right at the end of that book, that's exactly what happened when he was buried in Shechem. And I believe this is Old Testament evidence that from the very early moments of God's redemptive history, God's people had hope in the face of death, even hope of resurrection. When Abraham died, we're told that he died and was gathered to his people. When Isaac breathed his last and he died, we read the same, that he was gathered to his people. When Jacob died, he is said to have been gathered to his people. Well, where were they? With the Lord. This wording, I quote, described an expectation of the intermediate state of paradise from which one would be resurrected with bodily remains rejoined and transformed by God's Spirit into a spiritual body with which to inhabit heaven forever. And the turns the Israelites took carrying Joseph's mummy, remember he was embalmed in Egypt by the Egyptians who were very good at this. He was, car- he was carried And every single time some guys came around that, I don't know how the details of how they picked it up and carried it, but every time some guys got that way on their arms or on their shoulders, they were feeling an expression of Joseph's hope of eternal life. It was seen. It was felt by this generation that was coming out of Egypt. So Joseph's body, Joseph's faith were a link between the faithfulness of God in the past the fulfillment of God's promises in the present, and the assurance of God's promises in the future. And the question this raises for each of us, especially those who are naturally nearer the end of their lives than others, will the legacy of, you, of, of faith that you leave compel others to trust in the faithfulness of God? There are many different ways that we can highlight the faithfulness of God's leading of his people, even in our own death. We can plan our funerals to ensure that they point people to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know there are too many funerals that happen of believers where the resurrection is not even mentioned. What a tragedy. That's our hope. We can engrave our headstones with scripture words of hope beyond death as a monument to anyone who might one day walk past that. We can leave legacy gifts to our churches which says, I believe that the gospel will still advance till all of the Gentiles have come in until all of those who are of Jewish descent come in according to God's sovereign plan. I believe that that will happen after I'm dead until Christ comes. So I'm going to leave to you, church, resources to help you make that happen. And whether small amounts or large amounts, that would speak to family and church alike and say, God's faithful. He's still working. He'll keep His promises. He's building His church. He'll surely do it. So maybe your will needs to be adjusted to reflect that faith and the faithfulness of God. Another way that we can express this faithfulness of God to those who will come behind us is to think through what your final words would be if you were able to speak any from your deathbed. Exodus uh, 13.19 doesn't give us the full Joseph quote from Genesis 50. Here it is. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. He knew these were his final words. And we don't know the manner of death God will choose for us to glorify himself. But some of us will knowingly lie on a bed and know when the hour and moment approaches. Will we speak of God's faithfulness in that moment? Who are those who would speak of God's faithfulness in that moment? Well, surely it's those who have been students of all the ways that God has kept his promises in the past. Brothers and sisters, it's not too late to begin cultivating this. As an exercise, here's something I, I, I give you to do this afternoon. Go home and write out how you would want to convey God's faithfulness with your last words. So Write out what you would like your last words on this earth to be. Write them out. Just make it a short sentence. And then ask yourself, what would need to happen in my life between now and then for that to come out of my mouth? You see, when we're suffering, when we're afraid, when we're about to embrace the unknown, what's inside of us comes out unfiltered. So write your ideal last words that would convey God's faithfulness and reverse engineer back to this moment to figure out what would need to happen for those words to come out of you. Maybe that's memorizing more scripture. Maybe that means creating a lifetime line. We just look back to observe all the ways that God has proven himself faithful to you, both in the valleys and the mountains. Maybe that means bringing God's faithfulness to bear on your fear of death. Maybe that means bringing God's faithfulness to bear on your fear of getting old and frail and dependent. Maybe it means bringing God's faithfulness to bear on your fear of suffering because you don't know how much pain you may be in in such a moment. And if you're not a Christian and you're hearing me talk about death and asking people to write what your last words would be and this sounds morbid or absolutely utterly terrifying to you because you've got no hope or comfort beyond the grave, It's probably because, like most of the culture, you don't want to think about death. We're obsessed with death. It's all over every entertainment venue that we can engage in, but we don't like to actually think about the event of our own death. And the scripture gives a reason for that it's because there is the fear. The bondage of the fear of death. It is a terrifying thing to think about dying and falling into the hands of the living God apart from Christ. But friend, it need not be that way. The enemy of death has been defeated by the crucified, resurrected Christ. The wages of your sin, which is death, have been paid by Jesus. This is what he said, and this is my commitment to begin every funeral I'm involved in with these words for the rest of my ministry. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. If you cannot think of your deathbed without dread, which makes sense because you were not made to die. It's not natural. It's not normal. It's abhorrent. The Bible calls it an enemy. But if you can only think of that experience with dread, I urge you to investigate the truth of the resurrection. The tomb is empty because Jesus rose, and in him you will find hope and peace and the gift of eternal life in the risen Jesus. God is so faithful to these promises, church, to lead us in them, that he can lead us to a place where even in the moment of death, we can be preoccupied with his faithfulness as a legacy to others, that this is who God is. Will you follow him in his gracious, faithful leading? A third trait of God's leadership is found in verses 20 through 21. He leads us personally. And by this, I I don't mean each of us individually, although that's certainly true. I mean he leads us himself. He leads us personally. He's the one. He doesn't dispatch another to do it. He does it himself. Look at the sights and realities of these verses with me. It says that they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. We have no idea where these locations are. But even though they are insignificant dots on the map, on the way to the destination, which all of us have in life, God is nevertheless right there in them. As to how God led them, not by the way of the Philistines, around the way of the wilderness, towards the Red Sea, verse 21 gives us the answer. And Yahweh went before them in a pillar of clouds to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. This is not two pillars, it's one. In the daytime, it was visible as a cloud. In the nighttime, it was visible as a pillar of fire. And notice that it is God himself who is present here. Manifested, uh, theologians call these theophanies, God appearances. they manifested in the pillar that is cloud by day and is fire by night. It's not a vision. It's the glorious presence of Yahweh leading the way, for it tells us he is said to go before them. That was his purpose, to lead his people. And he himself, he shows up so that his people would know where to go, when they should go, and when they should stop. And it must have been absolutely stunning of a sight to behold. During the day, the unapproachable light of the glory of God was shrouded in the cloud, yet God still made His presence visible and known. At nighttime, with contrast of the darkness, enough of the glory of God emanated from the cloud, illuminating the pitch black to give light to the people. The same phenomenon of cloud and light manifested in uh, the glory of God on the mountain. We'll get to Exodus 19, where we read Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. When the tabernacle was built, the same glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. I'm quoting Exodus 40. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out, But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. He showed up himself to lead his people in the way they ought to go. He's the God who was there. He's the God who was present with his people. Now, you might be thinking, you know what? I wish that I could get a miniature version of one of those things. Wouldn't that be great if we had, like, an, each of us had our own miniature pillar of cloud, so during the day and pillar of fire by night, and, uh, and every decision that we had to make, we just, the Lord was just right there saying, yeah, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, go this way, don't go that way. Do we go on that day? Do we leave that job? Do we buy that house? Do we pick that long-term care home for our loved one? Do we go to that university or this university? On and on we could go. And you think, ah, oh, man, it would be so easy for the Israelites in that sense. Do we go? Well, no, the cloud's not moved. Do we, do we, do we stay? No, the Lord is moving. We, we need to go. We read passages like these with a longing or a sense that somehow maybe God has shortchanged us or that we're in some lesser position than his people of the past. Three comments in response to that. First, God cares about all aspects of our lives. Hear me say that. But he's not a magic eight ball. He's not a genie. He's not a divine vending machine, and we should never think of him or treat him as though he is. Second, I think it's important to understand that this is an extremely significant moment in redemptive history, and in these extraordinary moments, God works in extraordinary ways. But not every moment in history is seemingly like that. Not every moment in the life of God's people was like this moment. They hadn't seen the pillar of cloud and fire the whole time they were in Egypt, but God was still there, and God was still working and seeing and hearing and knowing. And when they got to the promised land, well, God didn't continue to lead them that way either. And third, you as a believer in Christ are in a far greater position than the people led by God's glory in the cloud and the fire. And you might be like, I don't know if I buy that. Well, not only do you have the full revelation of God, None of which they had in writing in this moment. The Spirit of God is in you. As we read about a pillar of cloud and fire leading God's people in Exodus 13, let us not forget what happens in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of what? Fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Later, when writing to suffering Christians, no doubt with this experience in mind, Peter says the spirit of glory And of God rests upon you. Which means every single day and every single night, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is in you and leading you to the promised new heavens and new earth. This is the tabernacle. We are living stones in this temple that God is building. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. There is no, I believe, hope or expectation of some future physical temple being built. You're looking at it. And the Spirit of God has descended on each living stone in that tabernacle, and he takes up residence among his people to lead them. How does the Spirit lead He leads the way in our sanctification to make us more like Jesus Christ. He leads the way in convicting of sin and convincing of righteousness. When your conscience is just screaming at you because you've sinned and you know it, and you are being brought low to confess your sins to God, who do you think is working? It's the Spirit of God in you, leading you. He leads the way in praying when in our groans we don't have the words. He leads the way by illuminating illuminating our understanding of the scriptures. He leads the way in training our powers of discernment so that we can distinguish between good and evil, true and false. He leads the way in distributing gifts in the church so that we know where we should use them to serve the needs of the body of Christ. It is the law of the Spirit of life that has set us free from the law of sin and death. It is the Spirit who leads the way to empower our murdering of the sin that remains in us. The Spirit who dwells in us, it is through the Spirit who dwells in us that resurrection life will one day be experienced by our mortal bodies. The God who appeared in cloud and fire to lead his people dwells in us by his Spirit to lead us personally, himself. And I know that doesn't necessarily answer the puzzle that we sometimes experience about what is God's will for my life? We ask that question in decisive moments and sometimes in small moments too. How do I know God's will for my life when we tie ourselves up into knots thinking that we somehow have to uh, uh discern what God hasn't revealed to us so that we can make the right decision. And I just want to take some of the angst and some of the mystery out of that and say, church, if you focus, if you put all of your, uh, the majority of your time and your attention attention on following God's revealed will for your life as it is in Scripture, the rest will be so much simpler for you. I'll give you one example. God's will is that you be sexually pure. It says that in Scripture. And so we might be wondering about all these other things. I don't know what to do here or there, but we're not even obeying God in the things he's clearly revealed. Start there. It is the will of God that we be saying thanks. That's what Scripture says. And we're, we puzzle over all the other things. What should I? Well, are you even saying thank you to God regularly in the course of your life? Focus there. And as your life comes more in line with God's revealed will and the Spirit's leading of you according to the Word of God, we get to a place where what we want to do and what God wants us to do go like this and we are just freed in our decisions. Why am I the pastor of this church? Because I want to be. If someone said, will you pray about being the pastor of our church? I would say no. I'm not even going to pray about it because I'm using my gifts here in the ways that the scripture tells me to, so I don't think it's a moral right or wrong. I'm just going to stay here. Now, if the Lord really wants to get my attention and go about ways to do that, then okay, but I I don't want to go anywhere else. I think it can just be that simple if we focus on the ways that God is personally leading each of us by his spirit as revealed in his word. And again, I ask, will you follow him? And just was true from Egypt to the promised land, the fourth trait of God's leading is observed in the final verse of our text. He leads us graciously. He leads us Faithfully, he leads us personally, and he leads us constantly. God is always there ahead of us. God leads us constantly. We see that in verse 22. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Uh, One commentator translates it this way. I love it. The pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not move an inch from before the people when god's presence first appeared in this manner i just was wondering this week what were the conversations like amongst the people of israel imagine a husband and wife is it still there yeah it's still there has it moved no it's not moved Dad, is it, is it still there? You're talking to your little one? Yeah, it's still there. Do you think it will be there in the morning? Yeah, I think so. And I wonder how long those conversations went on until they realized that God's not going anywhere. Because he did this for 40 years. And I wonder how comforting this was to them. Every time they pitched their tent, God was there. Every time they got up to use the facilities in the night, God was there. Every morning when they rolled out of bed and went outside, God was there. He never left them, even for an instant. He never drifted. He never wandered. A 40-year glorious visual demonstration of God's unfailing presence with his people. 14,600 days is over 350,000 hours. is over 21 million minutes. It didn't, it didn't move an inch. Think God wants us to know that He's with His covenant people? And as stunning and as miraculous as this appearing of God was at this place and this time, though the manner of God's being visible to His people is different, the reality is not. We hear Jesus say, Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He told his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, and he did by his indwelling spirit. And Keith prayed what the writers, the writer to the Hebrews, could apply uh, in this promise to such things as contentment with what we have and as help to keep us free from the love of money. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's constant. How do we experience that today? Well, in all of the ways that we experience the Spirit working. But there's also ways that God is so gracious and kind to show us that He's there with us. And I'm sure you've got story after story of evidence of God's assuring you that He's always there. I'm just going to end by telling you one from, from... my own life, from our life as a family. Those of you who are newer to our church won't realize that there was a a period of many years where we faced significant health challenges in the life of our family with our kids uh, that ranged to all sorts of uh, hard moments where we had one kid upstairs admitted to hospital. We had another kid down and emerge at the same time uh, in and out of McMaster Children's Hospital, uh, pediatric ICU, uh, procedures that needed to, to happen, stays at Ronald McDonald House, weird infections getting into eyes that could go to the brain and could be quite significant. And we've had many hospital stays. I've preached a, uh, prepared a good handful of sermons in hospital rooms in Ronald McDonald House, and, and that's just how you know the Lord in his—I wouldn't want to repeat any of those moments, but I wouldn't trade what the Lord taught us about himself anything uh, in the world and on one of those occasions in the midst of all of this I was in the parking lot of Cambridge Memorial Hospital and one of our kids was in, inside with my wife and had just been admitted to hospital and I was just texting my family like I normally would just to tell them what was going on and so I, I put in all the numbers I, I send the, the note and unbeknownst to me my stepmom had changed her number She hadn't given me the new number, which I won't dwell on that for very long, because I don't know why she wouldn't give me her new number. But anyway, I know her side, I'm sure. Um, I have a good relationship with my stepmom. So I send out this message, and the message to her goes to this random number. And I get this text message back. And it says, I don't know who you are. I don't think we know each other. But I'm a praying Christian and I will pray for your son. And in that moment, it's one of those moments I look back on, and I am convinced that God is real, that he is there, and that he is with us. And because of that, we can have every assurance that it is good and right, whatever the way is that he would lead us, that we should follow. Will you do so? Let me pray, and we'll sing. Lord, thank you for showing us who you are. And I pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from what we believe. Lord, help our unbelief, we pray, that we might grab hold with your strength these assurances of who you are for us, for your covenant people. Thank you, Lord, for being gracious. Thank you for being faithful. We praise you for leading us yourself and we praise you, Lord, for your constancy with us, never leaving nor forsaking. And so help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and founder, of our, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Help us not to take our eyes off our Lord as he leads us all the places that we should go until he finally and ultimately leads us to himself where we will be with Father, Son, and Spirit forever and ever and ever. Give us this hope and confidence today to follow you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.